second book of Timothy. It is the second historical uh, letter that we have from Paul to Timothy. Uh, there are such that there was probably a lot that was written and exchanged between the two, but we have two letters that have been uh, handed down throughout time and history that have been canonized by the church and the scriptures. And today we're super blessed uh, to start this new series on the second letter uh, of Timothy. And I have a couple of confessions to make right off of the bat um, before we start this. The first confession is that I am over-prepared for this series. And uh, I, uh, I've wanted to preach this for about three years, so basically since we planted the church. And I've had it on the, the roster every single time, and every time God's stuff's come up and we've had to move it for whatever reason. Uh, and finally, it just must be God's timing, uh, today all of the dangers. So fair warning, is loaded, <laughs> and it is ready to fire, uh, which brings me to my second confession, um, that a mentor of mine once said, he said to me, he said, David, whatever you do, treat Second Timothy with special care. Treat it with special care. He said, do not gloss over it, do not read into it. He said, let it, let it say what it says, and let it feel what it's supposed to feel. This is an incredibly special letter. All of Scripture is special. All of Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. We know that. All of Scripture is special. But I want you to understand, and I hope that you see this as we embrace and embark on this letter, that there is something about 2 Timothy. Uh, there is something unique about it. There is something incredible about it. Um, four chapters, 83 verses... 1,703 words, nine sermons, probably, depending how we go, it may get added to. Um, if Romans is the greatest letter ever written, then Second Timothy is not far behind it. The reason I say that is because the thing with Second with Timothy is it's not like Romans and that it has this marvellous unpacking of law and grace. It, it doesn't have incredible theological doctrines in it, but what it has is vulnerability. Uh, it is raw, it is intimate, it is powerful, and it is, it is beautiful. Um, and we would do well to not just read it and carry on. And so my prayer for us as we, we get into this letter, we get into this book and spend a couple of months looking at it, is that you would be reading it with me, that you'd be reading it with Robin, you'd be reading it with us as a leadership, read it in your life groups, and do it slowly. Like, read the whole thing, but then come back to it. Sit with it. Allow Paul to speak to you in this space, because there is no letter, there is no other letter in Scripture where Paul's heart is more clearly seen. In no other letter is Paul more vulnerable. In no other letter is Paul more uh, just open. You see his heart and you see his soul just unraveling on the page. Uh, it, is, it is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. And basically what he's doing is he's just giving a charge to his spiritual son, Timothy, to carry the torch. It's a simple word. Keep running. Keep fighting. Hold on to faith. It's this beautiful Beautiful charge to finish well, to finish well. So would you pray with me, and then we're going to get into it. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to study this incredible letter. 
And God, I pray that not a single word would fall to the ground. Father, I pray that my voice would be your voice, that I would step aside and you would speak. God, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and give us hearts to receive it in Jesus' name. Prepare us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go there. Second Timothy chapter Second Timothy chapter one, when you're there, say hey. Fantastic. It will also be up on the screens for you. I'm going to read from the ESV. I think we'll have the NIV up there. But it says this Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And I, as I remember constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. Because I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And we're going to pause there, and we'll see how far we get. Um, Lots of you know that uh, close to this time last year, I ran a marathon and there was lots of training that went up to that. We went up to the Sunshine Coast with Anthony Riemann, the treasurer, who was up here last week sharing a, a blistering finance report. And uh, as, we, as we, we sort of trained a lot, we prepared a lot, we went up there and we started this race. And the biggest run that I ever did in my training was about 31 kilometers, and a marathon is 42.2. And uh, I was training in, you know, five o'clock in winter in the Adelaide Hills. Who's loving winter, by the way? Not me! We are trying to sort out a heating situation for this room, so hold the faith. Keep, keep coming along, keep jacketing up, because we'll get some heating in here soon. Um, but So we were trained, like we'd finish a run, be ice on our socks, it'd be ice on our hair, it was so cold, and then we went up there, it was 25 degrees, and, and we, we ran this race, um, I would say underdone, is how I would describe it, underdone, underprepared. And with a particular goal in mind. And for the first 27 kilometers of that run, we were flying. We were in really good nick. I remember Ant said to me, he goes, I reckon we could push the pace a bit more. Like, I'm feeling good. I'm like, bro, it's 10 kilometers in, man. We've got, we got a long way to go. Let's just chill out a little bit. So for 27 Ks, we were busy. We were going beautifully. And then about 27 Ks, the wheels slowly started to unwind. Um, all of a sudden we're stopping to stretch, all of a sudden we're having toilet stops because we've had too many electrics and it's doing things to the stomach and all sorts of stuff was going on as our race was slowly unravelling and about the 35 kilometre mark, I turned to Anthony as I'm running, I said, man, this is a blooming long run. And in that exact moment, a 60-year-old woman celebrating her 60th birthday by running her 50th marathon, ran straight up next to her and said, sure is, boys! <laughs> and I remember thinking in that moment, what the cheese board? Like, how can you be here with me, <laughs> if I'm honest? 
you're 60 and you look frail-ish. <laughs> I am not 60 and I'm supposed to be good at like athletic activities and endeavours. And here I am battling and you're running past me like I'm in the mud. So she actually just stopped and like, didn't stop, she slowed uh, and ran with us for a while and told us her story and, uh, and we had a bit of a chat. It was fantastic for a couple of kilometres and then as she decided, I'm just going to crank up the pace and just whisk off in front of you, she left us, she left us with this, this great word of encouragement. She said to us, boys, keep running. She goes, just keep running. You will get there. She goes, if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> keep running. And I was marveling after, after that, just thinking, imagine the, the thought process of this beautiful 60-year-old lady running her race, looking up ahead and seeing two guys who look like they're kind of fit, just battling. And she's just obviously known what's gone on. She's known that we've just gone, we've got caught up in the speed at the start. We've run way too fast. She's been there before. She's gone through it all. She knows the battle that we've had and she's just trotted up. She never once got caught in the buzz of the day. She just ran her race. She knew her pace. She didn't waver. She didn't fluctuate. She just hit her time and off she went. And over the journey, consistent, and she finished well. So much so that she ran past us, basically gave us a little tap on the bum and said, come on, keep going. And I think there's something in that, isn't there? There's something about just running the race well, about finishing well. So many people start well. And when we think about faith, so many people start in a blaze of glory. So many people, we get saved, we get excited, and we're all about the church, we're all about the kingdom. We're His mentee someone he loves, and he's charging him to finish work. He's saying, hold the course, keep going, don't get caught up in everything else that's happening in life, just run consistently, run true, finish well. And there's something about this letter that will stir us, and I believe is for us in this season, to keep running, to run well, to finish strong to hold the course. And so as we go through this letter, oh, God's going to stir us up. He's going to do some good things. But can I set the scene for a moment so you appreciate what's happening here? You see, Paul in this moment is now, Paul's now, he's now an old man, right? So not by our standards today, but when someone's lived a life as Paul has his life, when someone has lived a life sold out to the gospel, when someone who ha has been beaten, he has been shipwrecked, he has gone without food, he has, he has just gone through the extremes of life for the service of Jesus Christ and he has come now to the end of his days. He is chained in a Roman prison and he is about to write his final ever letter. This old man, battered, withered, strong in spirit, chained in a dungeon, knowing that potentially days, maybe weeks from writing this letter, that the guilty verdict will be given, that Roman soldiers will enter that dungeon and they will lead him off 
and they will sever his head from his body because that is how he died. So what does Paul do in this moment? This beautiful, faithful, powerful, influential apostle of Jesus Christ, knowing that his time is done, knowing that there will be no more reprieve, there will be no more miraculous escape from prison, he will never visit another church, he will never write to another church, he will never plant another church, he knows that his time on this earth is coming to an end, he knows it's about to happen, so what does he do? He sits down and he pens a letter. And I need you to sit in that space as you read 2 Timothy. There's something special about this letter. Because this is the final will and testament of the man who God appointed to proclaim the gospel to people like you and me, to the Gentiles. This is the greatest missionary who has ever lived, the greatest church planter who has ever lived, one of the most anointed, powerful, godly men to ever walk the planet, and this is his final will and testament. And when you get to that point in life, and I've had just the honor of walking with some people through that space, there's something very raw, there's something very real, and when you see someone in those last moments when they are full of faith, all the other stuff kind of slides away, doesn't it? It's like, you know what, this is what's important in this moment. And this letter is just filled with what Paul is saying, this is what I need you to know, Timothy. And this is what he needs us to know. As servants of God, as members of Christ's church, to carry the torch to carry the mantle. As Paul is saying, I am done, Timothy. Now it's your turn. You go. You run. You're going to carry this responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here's what you need to know. I don't know about you, but that gets me going. That stirs me up. And so he starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul start like this? Well, first and foremost, it's a typical, uh, it's a typical greeting for an ancient letter. It follows the, the same pattern that we've seen before. Paul, an apostle of God, by the will of God. Now, I want you to catch something here because it's easy to miss this, so we're just going to slow it down, even though it's only verse 1. I don't know if we'll get out of verse 1 today. We'll see how we go. It's only verse 1, but he says something really important uh, when he said, by the will of God, right? Now, this is, if you're a Bible reader in this place, this is a greeting you've heard before, haven't you? You've heard it before in 1 Corinthians, you've heard it in 2 Corinthians, you've heard it in Ephesians, and you've heard it in Colossians. Why does he make this statement in this moment, in this time? And if you know your history, there's stuff going on in the church at this season where, where false teachers are rising up, right? So there's false teachers rising up and they're starting to preach a different gospel to what Paul was preaching. And one of the key facets in all of this 
is that Paul is constantly suffering. And if you are an ancient Jew or Greek or Roman, there's something about suffering that doesn't sit well with an understanding of God. Like in Greek and Roman culture, if the gods were pleased, then you were blessed. Yeah? Uh, Look at Job and look at the way that his friends responded to Job's suffering. There was this idea that that you shouldn't suffer. If God is happy with you, if you're a righteous person, then you'll be blessed. You won't suffer. And so these teachers started to come in and they were teaching. that, That sort of had its roots in the gospel. They were like, well, Christ suffered on our behalf, so we don't need to. And it's a lie and it's something that Paul, you know, Peter, John, something that the early church fathers preached ferociously against, and they live ferociously against. But in this moment, 67 AD, in this season, this was a significant thing happening in the church. Do you know, just a few short years after this, Paul's gospel and this message of suffering became the hallmark of the church. You know, Tertullian writes that it was the martyrs, uh, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, meaning that, that the church was blessed and the church grew like crazy, it was like wildfire through the suffering of the saints. But in this moment, three years after the great fire of Rome, if you know your history again, where where Emperor Nero, do you remember the old CD burning program called Nero? That was because of an ancient emperor who like lit Rome on fire and blamed the Christians, right? And so what Nero did is he used that great fire of Rome and he used that as an excuse to commence a persecution against the Christian church that effectively lasted for the next 250 years. That God used powerfully to advance the gospel, but three years in, 67 AD, three years in when this persecution's just starting to go out, Christians in Rome are getting murdered, they're getting slaughtered all over the place, but outside of that city... Christians still had a fair bit of freedom to just go about and do their thing. And so there's all these leaders outside of the city, and they're looking at Paul and Christians within that, and they're saying, well, why would you trust him? How is God's favor on him? Does not God desire to bless his saints? Does not God honor those who honor him? And they say, why would you trust this man who's lying in a dungeon? And then they started to teach other things like the resurrection has happened and so therefore there's no need for this, this great, you know, this call to holiness and this, this call to this life that Paul keeps calling us to. And so there was this different teaching coming out. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Someone say the will of God. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, Timothy, Remember who I am. Remember my story. I'm not like these guys who've just come from nowhere and appointed themselves as a teacher. I was that guy who was standing at Stephen's feet when they stoned him and I was giving my blessing. I was that guy who hated the church. I was that guy who was vehemently opposed to it and God got me. When I was on the Damascus road, God got me. He came to me. He called me. He changed me. He goes, I don't stand here in my own volition. I don't stand here because I'm in it for the fame or the notoriety. I didn't want to be here, but God called me here and he put something in me that I can't deny. And my life has been devoted to that call. 
He goes, it's not by my will, it's by his will. Teaching, you have been with me through church after church after church. He goes, you know me. Do not be led astray by their winsome ways and their sharp tongues. Hold fast to the truth, Timothy. Remember who I am. Do not forsake me in this hour. Because as we read this letter, we discover that he has been forsaken by everyone else except for faithful Dr. Luke. Everyone else has seen Paul's suffering and it has become a horror to them. And they have gone their own way. And Paul, in his prison, writes to his pupil. Remember who I am. Remember the gospel that God has entrusted to me. Don't forsake it. Finish well. This is a powerful letter. This is a powerful letter. And so Paul goes on, and then he says to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Can I pose a really simple question that's going to effectively be a one-point message from this sermon, mixed within a whole heap of other points? Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? You can write that down, you can underline that, you can put that in a box, you can draw a little flower next to it, you can put a tick next to it, you can put exclamations next to it. That is the hallmark of this message. Who are you discipling? Because we could go, we could spend hours, we could spend all day talking about why Paul chose Timothy. Why did he write to Timothy? And on another day, on another day, I might have got up here and preached about the fact that Timothy was positioned postured and purposed for the call. On another day, I might have got up here and talked about the city of Ephesus and how Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. Ephesus was this amazingly vibrant, one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world, a cultural hub, and that the significance of having a good, godly, truthful Bible leader in that place was so important to make sure that the the spread of the gospel into all the world went out. We could talk about the fact that Timothy was positioned in Ephesus for a particular reason. On another day, I might have talked about how Timothy uh, had postured himself before Paul in a posture of humility. How much is that missing in our church today, in our, in our world today? How much do we forget that actually sometimes we're supposed to humble ourselves and sit at the feet of someone else and learn from them before we charge off in our own direction, that there's something about being a humble, gracious leader, and that Timothy was exactly this. And so Paul invests in Timothy because he has seen that Timothy is a vessel worth investing in. On another day, I might have preached about the fact that Timothy was purposed from the call, that from day one, Paul had seen something in Timothy, could see that God had created him according to uh, his good pleasure and purpose to do the works that God prepared in advance for him, that Timothy was 
born in and of purpose, and that just maybe we as a church should heed that call because we exist in, the, in one of the fastest growing cities now in our nation. Did you know that? In this area, this region is one of the fastest population growing areas in our entire nation. Did you know that our, the Adelaide Hills are one of the least churched people groups in all of our nation? Did you know that? Did you know that the census said that 52% of Australians identify as Christian, 8% go to church once a month. In the Adelaide Hills, that is less than 40% of people identify as Christian. One of the lowest rates in all of our nation. And here we sit. Just maybe we too are positioned, postured and purposed for a call, amen? Just maybe God is calling us to go and reach this region. But that would be another day that I would preach that message. Today, I want to focus on three words. Three words. My beloved son. Who are you discipling? Why does Paul write to Timothy? Because Timothy is his beloved son. His beloved son in the spirit. Who are you walking with? Who are you journeying with? Who are you investing in? Do you know, God has put something in you. If you are a Christian in this place, God has put a seed of faith in you, not so that you can sit there and enjoy the seed and have everyone pour into you and pour into you and pour into you. No, the purpose of faith is that we get poured in so that we can pour out, and that is when blessing happens, and that is when growth happens. And you are called to disciple someone. You are called to be discipled and you are called to make disciples. That is the calling. And I look at my life, I don't know about your life, I've been so blessed in my life with people who have chosen not just to to have a passing interest in me but to genuinely disciple me. I think of my parents, great godly people who have just invested so deeply and given so much to see me grow in the faith. I think of Will Hall, who wrapped his arm around me, won NCYC. Anyone ever been to an NCYC, National Youth, Christian Youth something? <laughs> I remember being there. We were at a camp, and the people who were supposed to be catering that camp, had, like, they had no idea what it meant to cater for 18-year-old boys. We had chili con carne without chili and without meat, which means we had con. <laughs> Like there was just no, I remember being so hungry and just so downcast. And this one day, this lad just comes around with his big bald head and wrapped me up in his arm and said, come with me, I'll make you a hamburger. And that began a relationship of him just investing in me and in him like just showing me like how to lead and what it meant to be a young man of faith. And to this day, we still walk and talk and we still journey together. I remember a guy called Neil Milton who was a pastor at Adelaide West Uniting years ago. And he, uh, he invited me to preach probably my, like my first ever sermon, not just in front of my tiny little young adult community at my home church. Because he believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And he gave me a pulpit that I, didn't, like, I should not have had. <laughs> and I remember then just six months later, he said, hey, come and speak at our Easter camp. The first time I'd ever done 
a camp, a, a multiple messages in front of a, a reasonably large group of people. And he just spoke in me and just invested in me and gave me, he didn't just say, hey, here it is and disappear. No, he was there sowing in and journeying. And I remember the last message of that camp where I had my notes in front of me, frantically going through it. And he came up to me and he grabbed that book and he slammed it shut. And he said, you've done the work here. He goes, now preach it from here. And change the way that I preach. An amazing man of God. But most of all, I remember a guy called John Blanksby. A uniting chance, some of you in this room know who he is. We used to have a saying, Blanksby to God. <laughs> this beautiful, beautiful old uniting church minister, retired minister, who for 12 years has walked with me and continues to do that. A man who has encouraged me, who has challenged me, who has asked big questions and then had the grace to let me work through them, who has sat with me while I talked and I talked and I talked and I talked until eventually there was nothing else to say and still he sat in silence because he knew that the silence was the thing that I hate most <laughs> but the thing that I needed most. And at the end of sitting in silence for however long, which felt like eternity, he would then say one or two words which were straight from the heart of God. A man who held my hand while I bowed my knee one day and said, God, if you want me to preach your word, that is what I will do and I'll give my life for it. A man who has truly loved me as a son. And I am so grateful and I am so thankful that someone has discipled me, cared enough to invest in me. Should I not go and do the same? And this is why Paul writes to Timothy, because Timothy is a man who he has discipled, who he has journeyed with, who he has invested in, who he has championed, encouraged, who he has rebuked. He has done all these things to Timothy from a very, very day. I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy and I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived... In your grandmother, Lois. And then in your mother, Eunice. And now, Timothy, I'm persuaded, lives in you. You see, Paul had journeyed with Lois. And Paul had journeyed with Eunice. And he had seen a young man come to faith. He had invested in a young man's faith. He had sown into that faith and he had seen this anointing upon his life. He'd raised him up. He'd equipped him and prepared him for works of ministry. He'd taken him with him on various mission trips. He had prepared him for the call, yeah? This is what Paul had done in Timothy's life. And he gets to this point at the end of his days where he now has got a mantle that he has to hand on because his days are coming to an end. He's like, who do I give it to? Who's going to carry this on? And you know who it is? It's Timothy why? Because he's a man who I have discipled for years and years and years, and I know he knows the heart of the gospel. He's got the vision. He's got the mission. He understands the call, so now carry the mantle, my son. And we are called to do the same. Who are you discipling? It's awfully quiet in this Baptist church this Sunday morning. Who are you discipling? 
Can we not be Christians who get spiritually fat because all we do is receive? Can we pour out what's being poured in? Because if we do that, not too long from now, there's going to be people standing on this platform preaching the word who at the moment are in that Sunday school right now. And that is our heart as a church. You know, as a church, we've just, we, like, we're so excited about, we want to build a discipling culture. We've just sent people on a training program. In the next couple of months, we're going to be releasing sort of programs and stuff to try and just hone in because this is the mandate to make disciples. Disciples, followers of Jesus, not fans of Jesus. That is our call. That is our passion. That is what we're on about as a church, and that is what we are going to do as a church make disciples, which is why sometimes we're going to get up here and preach messages that make us shift in our chair a little bit. Who are you discipling? Can I offer a word of encouragement to some people in here? I love this verse. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Do you know, um, when I was 17, 18 years old, sort of coming to faith, uh, coming alive in faith, I should say, um, there was this beautiful old lady in our church, a lady called Audrey Kenny. And uh, Audrey Kenny was just this faithful servant. She was at every prayer meeting. She was at every service. She would have hated the music. She would have hated the expression of church. But she was there because she believed in the purpose. She believed in the mission and the vision. And she wasn't there for herself. She was there for the next generation. I'll never forget one day she came up to me as she started to you know, get a bit older and was a bit more difficult, but shortly before she passed away, and she had a book in her hand, and she gave me this book. She said, I want you to know, I want you to have this, David. This is a devotional that your grandma gave to me. Uh, and I, my grandma died when I was three years old. And she said, I want you to have it, because your grandma is the one who led me to faith. And this devotional has meant everything to me. And now I'm entrusting it to you. And may her words, which have blessed me and encouraged me, now bless and encourage you. I remember going through that devotional and it was, just says my grandmother's handwriting. Prayers, highlighted. I don't, it wasn't highlighted, I don't think they had them back then, but it was <laughs> scribbles everywhere, deep questions. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Deep questions, struggles, celebration, letters to Audrey. And that was just such a special thing. And it just stirred me up in prayer, like preparing this message today to speak to some of you in this room who have a heritage of faith. Firstly, to those of you who are praying and maybe you've given up praying, I felt again to encourage you today, keep praying. If you've got sons, you've got daughters, you've got grandchildren in the faith, Pray, keep praying, be encouraged. The seed of faith, that heritage of faith, there's something in the power of a praying grandmother. There's something in the power of a praying parent. There's something in the power of just getting on your knees before God. You do not know what God is gonna do with that generation in the future, but what you can control right now is the posture of your knees. And you can get on your knees and you can pray and you can seek first his kingdom and its righteousness. You can seek after God and you can plead with God for your family and your friends. And how often do we get away from that? Because there's too many other things filling our time. 
Can we get back to praying? Can I encourage you who have been praying? God is hearing your prayers. God has not forsaken you in those prayers. God is hearing you. He is invested in you. He knows you and the cry of your heart and he is with you in that. And he loves the one you're praying for more than you love them. And can then I speak to those of you who have a heritage of faith and at the moment there's a heritage but there's no passion. Can we get real in this house for a moment? Do you know what Paul says to Timothy? He goes, I know you have a sincere faith. I know it. I believe it. I've seen it in your, your grandma. I've seen it in your mum. You have a sincere faith. And then he says, now fan it into flame. He's like, don't just get someone else to fan it into flame. It's not anyone else's job to fan that gift of faith into flame. That is your responsibility. That is your choice. People will encourage you. God will bring people to stir you up, to ignite things, to start to trigger that. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision of, am I going to run after God or am I not? And there's people in this place who have a heritage of faith, but you are not walking with the Lord. You are not running after God. There's too many other distractions. And I feel God saying today, fan it into flame. It is the most It is the only thing that matters in this life. Why else would Paul on his deathbed choose to write this letter and these words? He says, fan it into flame. And sometimes we need that little to get moving. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to close in a minute. Because we are well past time and we're definitely not going to get through the next six verses. So we just added another sermon to the series. But I hope you hear my heart, my heart in this. <clears throat> Let me tell you another story. When I was a, a young adult, 20, I don't know what I was, 22, 23, I remember complaining about things in our church and wanting things for ourselves. I was like, well, the church should be doing this, the church should be doing that, it should be doing all this stuff for us. This lady called Jenny, who was probably in her 40s, looked me in the eye and she said, stop complaining. (laughs) And she goes, you are not a young adult. If you are over 21, you are an adult in every single nation in the world. Start acting like it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> this is full. It was exactly what I needed to hear. She said, you're just sitting there. You're just constantly wanting someone to do something for you. That's not how the gospel works. You've been given a seed of faith by God. Now get off of your bum and start doing something for the kingdom. And then we will come alongside you. We will encourage you. We will champion you. We will give you opportunities to move and to grow and to develop. But you cannot move something that is stubborn and constantly choosing to sit. Rolling wheels gain momentum. She's like, get moving. Start doing. Start investing. Fan into flame the heritage of faith. Because do you think your parents just sat there and said, give, give, give? No, they went and served. Do you think your grandparents said, give, give, give? No, they went and served. So what are you going to do about it? She's like, go and do something. Go and make a decision to serve. Go and make a decision to invest in your faith. If you want to start a Bible study, start a Bible study. Rally the young adults. Get them together. 
step up. And so I thought, okay, let's do it. That's what we needed in that moment. And I don't know if there's someone in this room who needs to hear this, but I felt really compelled that I had to preach it. And my prayer is that it lands on your spirit. But I pray that you hear this word through the lips of an old man who has been poured out for the gospel, who has lived his life, who has devoted his entire life to the gospel. And he's looking next generation and he's saying, who's going to stand in the gap now? Who's going to pick up the torch and run with it? And it's the heart of God through the apostle of God to the people of God. So my prayer is that we hear it in grace, that we receive it not as condemnation, but as motivation, as inspiration. And that as a church, we would get on our knees, we would posture ourselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we would say, God, use me. Use me. Here I am. Let's fan this gift into flame. Amen. Stand Heavenly Father, as we stand together as one church with one vision and one mission to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth, to see lives transformed, to see Jesus glorified, to see hope revealed. I pray that you align our hearts today, Lord. God, that we would just come back to that place, come back and posture ourselves at your feet. God, that you would send us in your power and your mercy, knowing that it's as we surrender ourselves to you and as we go, it's not by might nor by power, but it is by your spirit that all things happen. So let us put in place the daily disciplines of faith to fan that into flame, knowing that you're the one who goes before us, behind us and beside us. All you're saying is who will carry the torch. God, we say, yes, please. We want to be a torch-carrying church. We're not interested in being a social club. We're not interested in getting caught up in the we want to be on mission each with our unique call each a unique part of the body for a greater purpose so we love you we thank you we give you honour and praise and we thank you for this beautiful letter this dynamic challenge of this apostle to Paul and so God we put ourselves in Timothy's shoes let us hear it as he would have heard it, that we might be encouraged and inspired to go into the world and fulfill the gracious. Since name, together with one loud voice, all God's saints said, Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.